Hi everybody. I'm glad that we can be together in this way today. Grateful that God has safely brought us through another week. We continue with our sermon series through the book of First Peter, After Suffering Glory, and we come again today to First Peter chapter 3 and verses 17 to 22. This is part two of last week's sermon. Last week we saw how Peter describes five things that we need to remember when we suffer for being a Christian, or even when we face more general sufferings as a Christian. It seemed a bit much to deal with all five points in one sermon, and everybody knows that good Baptist sermons only ever consist of three points, and so we looked at two points last week, and today we'll have a look at the next three. Let me read the passage to you again, 1 Peter chapter 3 and from verse 17. Peter writes, It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. And this is God's word. This week I've been rereading an older book by the Romanian pastor Richard Wurmbrandt called In God's Underground. In the book, he tells the story of his imprisonment and torture over 14 years for his Christian faith under the communist regime. It's helpful not just to talk about Christian suffering academically or even theologically in a vacuum, but rather to consider the topic practically from the trenches, from the lives of men and women who've actually suffered for their faith. It was interesting that near the beginning of the book, when he describes being arrested and imprisoned, Richard Wurmbrandt writes this, I had prepared myself for prison and torture, as a soldier in peacetime prepares for the hardships of war. I had studied the lives of Christians who had faced similar pains and temptations to surrender, and thought how I might adapt their experiences. Many who had not so prepared themselves were crushed by suffering. As we saw last week, Peter is preparing his readers for suffering. They are starting to suffer now as believers, and much worse is to come. And Peter wants them to have a few things settled in their minds before this comes. It's too late to prepare for battle the night before, there are certain things that we need to keep in mind and keep on thinking about 
so that when trouble comes, we are well prepared for it. And Peter writes to these folk and says, if you're going to suffer for being a Christian, or indeed if you are going to face more general suffering as a Christian, there are five things that you need to remember and keep on remembering. I'll just recap the first two before moving on to the next three. First, when faced with Christian suffering, we remember Christ suffered. Verses 17 and 18. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, for Christ died for sins once for all. This verse challenges the popular idea that if we are Christians, the odds of anything really bad happening to us are reduced substantially. No, Jesus specifically said to us, in this world you will have trouble. And when it comes to suffering as a Christian, he said, if they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. And yet at the same time, Remembering that Christ also suffered comforts us. When your granddaughter tells you that your ideas about Christian marriage are old and outdated and you feel rejected and belittled, Jesus knows firsthand and understands and cares. Second, when faced with Christian suffering, we remember Christ has triumphed and brought us to God. Verse 18. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Our greatest need today, the need to be reconciled to God, has been met through Jesus' death for us on the cross. Not only that, his resurrection from the dead guarantees that we too will be raised to a new eternal life. Therefore, as Jesus told us, we do not need to fear those who can only kill the body and after that can do nothing more. We can face a vicious bully or a violent attacker or a ventilator this week with complete confidence because we know that we are eternally safe. Third, when faced with Christian suffering, we remember the example of Noah, the second part of verse 19. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. There's no more putting it off. Here we are at last, at what must be one of the most difficult passages in the whole of the New Testament. There are many possible ways of interpreting what Peter says here, but I'll mention the three main ones. The first is to say that after his death and before his resurrection, Jesus descended into hell and preached to the spirits of those sinners who had died in the flood at the time of Noah. Some people believe that Jesus was offering them a second chance, which would go against the whole sweep of biblical theology. Also, it's difficult to understand why Jesus would only preach to the sinners of Noah's time and not to all sinners of the entire period before his coming to earth. 
The second interpretation is to say that the spirits in prison are fallen angels, not human beings. And Jesus goes and proclaims to them his victory over them and their certain doom. This would be similar to Paul's statement in the book of Colossians, where he says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The third interpretation is to say that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, preached to the people of Noah's day while they were still alive. He obviously didn't do this personally, but he spoke to them through Noah. Because these people did not listen to Noah, their spirits are in prison, hell, now, although they were alive when Christ, through Noah, preached to them. Most scholars would not agree with the first interpretation of Jesus giving a second chance to those who are in hell, which means that we should probably remove the line, he descended into hell, from the Apostles' Creed, which wasn't written by the Apostles in any case. I think the second interpretation, that of Jesus' triumphant proclamation to the spiritual world, is quite possible. But at the moment, I tend to go along with the idea of the spirit of Jesus preaching through Noah to the unbelieving world of his time. In the book of Second Peter, Peter again speaks about Noah and refers to him as a preacher of righteousness. And this idea of Christ speaking through Noah also fits quite well with what we read back in chapter 1, where Peter speaks about the prophets who searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. According to tradition, St. Peter stands at the gates of heaven And one day, when we reach those gates, Peter, or anyone else for that matter, is not going to ask us, before you come in here, what does 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 mean? You don't know? Well, you certainly don't belong here then. This is one of those matters that we might call peripheral when it comes to the Christian faith. There are some things that are central to our faith, the nature of God, the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man, the inspiration of the scriptures, the death of Jesus on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, all those things are central to our faith. And then there are other things that really are at the periphery. Whatever you believe about the spirits who disobeyed in the days of Noah is not central to your Christian faith. But Peter mentions Noah in these verses because the life of Noah has many parallels with those who are suffering for their belief and trust in God. This is why Peter holds up the example of Noah to those who are suffering and about to suffer for their faith. Let me just list the parallels. Firstly, Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. So are Peter's readers. Remember in chapter 2, Peter describes them as being foreigners and strangers in the world. And maybe you too are the only Christian in your office, the only one who holds a different set of values. Secondly, Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. 
Back in chapter 2, Peter urged us to live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We too, then, are called on to be righteous, even though everyone around us may be doing wrong. Thirdly, as we've seen, Noah witnessed to those around him. It's very difficult to hide an ark that was about as big as a rugby field and four stories high. Noah had to give an answer to anyone who asked him what on earth he was doing. Can you imagine him day after day, month after month, year after year, working and sawing and hammering and nailing? There was no rain. He would have faced mocking and jeering, and yet he kept on sawing and kept on witnessing. And in a similar way, Peter says to us, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Maybe you mention to someone that you'll be in church on Sunday and they respond, church? Why ever would you want to go to church? And it's an opportunity for you to answer with gentleness and respect. You know, several years ago, I would have said exactly the same. But then I met Jesus, not just as a historical person, but as a living presence in my life. And here are some of the differences that he's made in my life. Fourthly, Noah knew that judgment was coming on the world. In the same way, Peter says in chapter 4, the end of all things is near. Noah lived and preached with that in mind, and we are urged to do the same. In fact, the judgment on the earth in the time of Noah is often used in the New Testament as a picture of what the time of the final judgment will look like. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You and I are to live with that final judgment in mind. This pandemic may or may not be the end of the world, but the end is certainly coming. This world is not just going to keep on going on and on forever. Jesus is coming back. And that is an encouragement to us when people mock us for our faith. And it is a challenge to us to reorganize our lives and our priorities in the light of that sure and certain event. And lastly, Noah and his family, although small in number, were finally saved. And the same will be true of us, no matter what we might be going through. Chapter 5 and verse 10, Peter says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. This is also Peter's point in his second letter, when he says, 
If God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. When you're the only one not drinking at the matric after party and the others are laughing at you and mocking you, you can remember Noah and you can know that you are in good company. Jesus, through his spirit, was preaching through Noah in the Old Testament. He preached through Peter and the people of his time, and he preaches through us today. And it was costly then, and it's costly now. But like Noah, we are safe with God and will ultimately be saved. Fourth, when faced with Christian suffering, we remember our baptism. Verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In speaking about Noah, Peter is reminded about baptism. He says that this water symbolizes baptism. Actually, the Greek word here is antitupos, antitype, a pattern corresponding to baptism. In other words, just as the water of the flood saved Noah and his family by allowing them to float away on the ark, so baptism saves us. Of course, in saying baptism saves you, Peter is aware that he could easily be misunderstood, and so he quickly explains not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an outward expression of an inner spiritual reality. In our hearts, we've acknowledged and asked God to apply verse 18 to us personally. Christ died for my sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring me to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. That's something that I do personally in my own heart, and baptism is an outward declaration of that to others around me. The minister or person who introduced Jesus to me pushes me down under the water, symbolizing the fact that I have died to an old way of life. And then he or she raises me back up out of the water to symbolize that I've been raised with Christ to a new life. And let me pause here and ask, is that you? Have you made that decision to follow Jesus? And have you let others know that by being obedient to Jesus in baptism? And if not, what's preventing you from doing that? But in calling us to remember our baptism, Peter wants us to look backward and look forward. We look backward and we remember our inward and outward commitment to Christ. Maybe on the occasion of our baptism, we even sang that song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. 
And so when you know that you are not going to get this contract because you refuse to pay the bribe, you remind yourself, I promise to follow Jesus no matter what. This is part of the suffering that comes from following him and he will look after me. But then I also look forward and I remind myself, especially in the light of the example of Noah, that on the day of judgment, when the whole world falls apart, as in the days of Noah, I will be saved through my trust in Christ. Even if I should be arrested and put in jail for being a Christian, I can remind myself in the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Incidentally, Paul cannot be speaking here about God rescuing him out of earthly trouble because these are some of the last words that the Apostle Paul wrote before his life was ended by the flash of a Roman sword somewhere along the Apian Way in Rome. He's speaking here about the ultimate rescue. I remind myself, just as Noah was saved on the day of judgment of his day, so too when one day the heavens disappear with a roar, the elements are destroyed by fire, the earth and everything in it is laid bare, God will bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. And finally, number five, when faced with Christian suffering, we remember Christ at God's right hand ruling over all. Look at the second part of verse 21. Baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. The Apostle Paul uses a very similar image in Ephesians chapter 1 when he speaks about the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the Jesus whom we serve, even when we are suffering. And this means that when I'm sat in the doctor's office and he comes in with the results and tells me that, yes, it is cancer, I can remind myself in the words of last week's hymn, no power of hell No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. We've actually come full circle in these verses then. Peter began by reminding us of Christ's humility. Christ suffered. Jesus' example of patient suffering will give us meekness and patience and gentleness when we suffer for him. But Peter now ends with Christ's triumph. Jesus rules over all, and that gives us courage when we face those who would harm us, even harm us physically. 
In the book I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Richard Wurmbrandt describes his first interrogation at the hands of a certain Colonel Dulgaru. And let me read to you what happened. Dulgaru was a refined barbarian, patterned on the Soviet diplomats with whom he'd mixed. Do you know, he said with venom, that I can order your execution now, tonight? I said, Colonel, here you have the opportunity for an experiment. You say that you can have me shot. I know you can. So put your hand here on my heart. If it beats rapidly, showing that I am afraid, then know there is no God and no eternal life. But if it beats calmly, as if to say, I go to the one I love, then you must think again. There is a God and an eternal life. Dulgaru struck me across the face and immediately regretted his loss of self-control. You fool, he said. Can't you see that you're completely at my mercy and that your saviour, or whatever you call him, isn't going to open any prison doors? I said, his name is Jesus Christ, and if he wishes, he can release me. It took 14 years, but after much suffering, Richard was released. And on the 17th of February, 2001, at the age of 91, the Lord finally rescued Richard from every evil attack and brought him safely to his heavenly kingdom. The Bible commentator, Karen Jobes, sums up these verses in this way. She writes, Christ, by the power of his resurrection and ascension, has defeated all the powers of evil and will destroy them along with all who practice evil, just as in the days of Noah. Therefore, suffering unjustly for doing good is evidence that one is on the right side of God's final divide. Unjust suffering for doing good as God defines good means that one is living out that pledge to God taken at baptism for a lifetime devoted to serving him. Just as Christ's unjust suffering led to his vindication, Peter encourages his readers that the unjust suffering they experience will not be the final word, for they have already been vindicated when Christ arose from death. May these thoughts strengthen us, perhaps in the future, but even in this week, as we aim to hold out the gift of life to a dying world. Amen.